When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, should we call you Sandy or Sandra? You can call me Sandy. I'm like Sandy to basically everyone now except for my agent. Oh, really? What does your agent call you? Sandra. Sandra. <laughs> yeah, British people always pronounce Sandra Sandra as Sandra. Um, it is very nice. And in, and there, it's a really upper class name. Oh, well, here here it's an upper class name. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's so not. It's What's an so upper class? Like here, the upper class name would be like Brielle, right? Like give me a fucking there. break, Brielle. <laughs> it would be like oh Kingsley. No, no, no. Those are those are literally both teen mom names. <laughs> yeah, but those teen moms are rich. Okay, fair, fair. <laughs> I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And And I'm I'm a a writer, writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today we have Sandra Newman. Sandra Newman is the author of the novels The Heavens, a New York Times notable book of the year, and The Country of Ice Cream Star, long listed for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, and named one of the best books of the year by The Washington Post and NPR, as well as several other works of fiction and nonfiction. Her writing has appeared in Harper's and Granta, among other publications. She lives in New York City. Her new novel is The Men, a dazzling, mind-bending novel in which all people with a Y chromosome mysteriously disappear from the face of the earth. Welcome, Sandra. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Ox. I'm going to pull a a Debbie Treisman and call you Sandy for the rest of the episode without acknowledging that it's different than the name we announced. That's (laughs) that's just called a Treisman, and I'm going to do it. Sandy, will you please read to us? Okay, um, I'm just going to read the, the first couple of pages from The Men. Um, and as those who have been paying close attention will know, this is a book where all people with a Y chromosome disappear suddenly, and it begins from that moment when everybody with a Y chromosome disappears. When the men disappeared, it felt like nothing. I was camping in the mountains of Northern California with my husband and my son. It was dusk and the sky was all one color, grayish violet, silken, dim. The lime green leaves of the alder above me were trembling and luminous, brighter than the sky. In the tent, 
my husband, Leo, was reading on an iPad and letting our five-year-old, Benjamin, who had night terrors, fall asleep against him. Through the tense mesh window, I could make out the iPad's light. I was lying in a hammock, putting off joining them. It was August, hot even up here in the mountains, and I had an idea about watching the stars come out and feeling wild and solitary, bound to no one. I wanted to indulge my fantasies of escape, of being a prima ballerina in Japan or sailing solo around the world, fantasies in which I'd never married and had my whole life free. Still, I felt my husband and son there and loved that they were there. I was in love with them. I didn't want to be single and childless. I wanted to fantasize about it with them there. I wasn't worried by their long silence. There had been times I was frightened in the world, bad times. This was not a bad time and I was happy. At 7.14, an intense nothing happened, an elation that wasn't of the nerves or the brain. I would later recall it as being like drugs. When it passed, I felt Leo and Benjamin were gone, but quickly dismissed the idea as foolish. Mood swings were normal for me and often accompanied by bizarre ideas. I looked to the tent and saw the tablet's light, a vivified spot. I didn't call out. I didn't want to wake Benjamin. I went back to my thoughts. At about eight o'clock, I fell asleep. Down the mountain, in the world of people, women were already calling the police. They were running through their houses, screaming names. They were pounding on neighbors' doors for help and finding their neighbors running through their houses, screaming names. They were driving to police stations and discovering them lit and empty with the doors left open. Small aircraft were falling out of the sky. I went to sleep on the mountain while the world fell apart. I slept right through till sunrise. Their living voices, gruff and deep. The sound of a man in another part of the house. Boys hanging from branches like monkeys, hooting and kicking out at each other. How three boys could sound like 10. Drumming on a table, whistling, masculine, unselfconscious noise. Gone. Too few women on this committee. Another board of directors with no women. Men making decisions about women's bodies. Gentlemen's clubs, men's rights, women's magazines, feminism, gone. Watching a boyfriend play computer games, laughing at a man's story, then another man's story. Bracing yourself when he shows you something he made, the relief when it's not bad. The girl act, putting on a little girl voice, wearing flat shoes to make sure he's taller. The big hand on your shoulder. Him telling you it's going to be okay. You're beautiful, said with that authority. Letting him take over, letting him drive, letting him decide. Him carrying you to bed, 
the rush of being sexually helpless before it, being an object of desire for men. Gone. The suffocating, the suffocated feeling of being talked over. A man putting on a high voice to mock you. At a party, a man's eyes passing over you to find a younger woman. Him answering your question, but addressing it to her. Two men talking for a young woman's benefit. She mutely attends as if judging a contest. You say something and all three wait impatiently for you to finish. No one hearing you because they don't want to look at you. Standing in a mirror in a public restroom and seeing what they see. Him getting scary, him punching the wall, keeping your head down and letting it pass. Being ashamed, you set him off. Being proud, you didn't. The moment you realize you're not in control, all the magical thinking falls away and you're a body being killed. Or just coming to a group of men at the street corner, them falling silent and staring as you pass, not at your face. Footsteps behind you in the dark, big hands on your throat, not being able to stop him, gone. Your father, your brother, your husband, your son. Okay, I'll stop there. The first thing I, I wanted to ask you was, this is such a, a horror movie premise in a way. Um, and the novel is obviously many things, and that's what makes it interesting. But the starting point seems like something that could be reasonably called, you know, like a horror movie premise. Where, what was that starting point for you? And how, what propelled you in to this story? Okay. Um, you know, I can't remember the exact moment when I thought of the story and like, interesting, this, this book for me, began from the main character before the premise kind of invaded the book. So the, the premise is that the, the idea of all people with a Y chromosome or all men disappearing and women being left or of the, the sexes being separated, just, just any way that one can create an all-female society. It's, it's a kind of an old premise. It goes back you know, at, at least to 1908, um, which is when Charlotte Perkins Gilman's Herland was written. And I've read a bunch of these books. Um, there, there was a fad for them in like the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Um, even Ursula Le Guin wrote one of them. And they're, they're really interesting. Like they're, they're obviously written from a feeling of extreme frustration and despair that the the idea that it is simply impossible to have a world of equity as long as there are two sexes and one of them is stronger than the other mm -hmm. it's, it's something like that and one of them has to go through childbirth the 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 disadvantages of being of having a female body be, begin to seem so overwhelming, especially in the sexist 
much more sexist societies that then obtained, I mean, it may come back, of course, but that that people felt that the only way to imagine a world in which it could be good to be a woman and in which there could be some sort of social hope was to imagine that men were gone. And I was fascinated by these sorts of books when I was like 19, 20 years old. And that kind of came back to me. But by the time, like, by the time I was writing this book, I'm, you know, I'm 56 years old, it's a long time. So it was kind of like, I'm kind of like mixed up about this premise at this time, because it strikes me very much as a premise that comes from the idea that the way you solve your problems is by eliminating all of the bad people and you come up with a category of people who are bad and then you eliminate all of them regardless of what they've done, which seems to me an idea that has really taken hold in our society in a lot of different ways and people really really kind of tend to want to create a hate group for any problem that they have mm. and blame the group rather than trying to solve the problem. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, unfortunately that does seem to be the case. Um, the You said you had the character before using your words here, the premise invaded kind of the drafting. What was it about? What was it? That, was it, was it Ruth's predicament or as far as like being in the mountains and, and that kind of initial inciting incident from her perspective, or when you say you had the character first, what does that mean? Um, it's like uh, the character. It was originally, it was going to be a novel in letters, which was all of the novels that this woman wrote in her lifetime. Mm. So, so, well, sorry, all the love letters this woman had written in her lifetime to all the different men that she was in love with. And from the reader's point of view, it would be obvious that the men were like ultimately insignificant, that their personalities were insignificant. And this was her kind of constructing her life around the figure of a man. So that was where it originally started and it had no science fiction premise whatsoever. And then it gradually acquired a science fiction premise over the course of, I think, I think when I originally came up with it was 20 years ago. Wow. wow. So you, you started writing these letters. Is that true? And then as you went, it changed? I Do never you... really, I never actually got very far with that idea. So oh. I, I never even wrote a single letter, actually. It was just in my in my head as this story and then various kind of accretions of plot gathered on it and then fell away or until it over time turned into this book somehow. Do you write like that a lot where you think and think and think about it and then sort of these, these I don't know, bits of eggshell fall away until you get to the the actual... I was going to say yoke. I'm not going to say that, hmm. but the actual, like the actual structure, the actual plot. I guess. I mean, I, I tend to have, like have a lot of ideas for books and they churn around in my head and some of them survive and some of them die. Um, and I, I can't really tell what the book is really going to be until I start writing it. But the, right now I've got at least at least five very five various ideas for books that are in some kind of embryonic state. 
Oh, you use the egg. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, when they're in their embryonic state, are they, are they being written down? Are they, um, like, do you ever write the idea down or do you, is it more like, I just need to think about these things and see if what sticks. Oh, I write everything down. I can't, like, I can't, I almost can't think without writing. I'm, you know, I find it extremely difficult to have a coherent thought without writing it down. That's how I feel. I feel like I actually don't think unless I'm writing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so true. It's like, let me see how I feel about this. And, and you realize how you feel about it as you're, as you're writing. Is it, is it like a, a journal you keep? Or what kind of writing is it? I have like about like seven different files. Well, actually way more than, I have so many like random files on my computer. I'm an extraordinarily disorderly person. (laughs) So so I have, I try to keep a list of all of the book ideas somewhere, but I never remember what I've called it. So (laughs) then I start renaming it and like, it's, it's crazy. Like I have t- terrible memory. So, so occasionally I stumble upon these files with all this list of book ideas and I'm like, Oh my God, look at this <laughs> like this. my fortune is made, but then I forget about them again. So <laughs> my, my computer, as I'm sure everyone's computer does now <clears throat> auto saves, whatever document I'm writing on, mm-hmm. but they don't prompt me to name it anything. So everything's like, I think I'm on like document 23 and oh, I have, I've- they're not distinguishable. It's just like, what, did I write that in document 12 or document 14? I don't, I don't know, but it is, it's kind of nice. You come upon these little surprises where you're like, what the hell was I talking about here? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Did the, um, the various points of view that you write from in this novel, was that something like when you started actually writing it, when you came to the, you know, the actual idea, the plot that you decided on, was it always from these varying points of view or did they come to you as you, as you wrote? I just thought um, after a certain point, originally it was all going to be from, from Jane's point of view. Um, but then I, I sort of realized that it was going to be impossible to, to do this plot. It's so much of a plot about a world rather than about a person that I realized I was going to need a bunch of points of view, which I've never really done before. Um, so it was kind of, it was kind of challenging. Um, although it's one of those things like there's some challenges that you that you engage with with a great deal of excitement and intellectual engagement. And there are some where you're just like, oh my God, the pain <laughs> in the ass challenge. And it <laughs> started out as like, why do people do this? What a fucking pain in the ass. It's stupid. It just ruins like all potential to develop a unified voice in the book. Um, but it got int- but it was actually interesting when I did it. Like the characters got to me and it became much it became like actually like a powerful experiment for me, but but not one that I that I ever wish to be involved with. <laughs> there was a point there was a point in reading this novel where I thought, okay, at this point I can feel like it would be really fun to write. And it was actually I marked it, it was the eight, it was chapter eight, page 114 in the paperback where uh, G1 first heard about the men at a truck stop in Battle Mountain. And there seems to be kind of a, 
the confluence of some of the threads that have appeared previously in the novel start to come together, but still are not completely overlapping. But you start to get a sense of what is possible for the rest of the novel. And it feels like once these threads start to inter interact with each other, that you're really having fun as a writer. Yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Sandy's like, uh, if you say you, so. She's like, you fucking clown. What are you talking about? Uh, Jesus Christ, Alex. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. <laughs> Just say it was fun, please. No, no. It was fun. It was fun until I actually had to make it work. And then it's being fun, really. Like, like it was fun until I finished the first draft and I saw that, oh yeah, this plot makes no sense. And then I had to make it make sense. And that was another whole year of my life making the plot make sense. So. Well, I mean, one thing that I, I wanted to ask you about is this novel and your last novel, The Heavens, both are have very complicated plots. If you're trying to just describe them to someone, you're very often, often like doubling back and be like, oh, wait, actually, wait, what I mean is that, and that quality is in the prose itself in the best way and that there are many points where there's reframing, there is reorienting the reader, there is doubling back on what was given to the reader as truths, but, oh, actually, this is what I omitted. Um, and I was wondering if that kind of complication is something that you, because obviously you've written many novels, is that the kind of thing where you feel like you do it naturally to keep yourself interested and challenged, or is it just even more simply than that, how, how you write. I think, yeah, definitely. I do it to keep myself interested and challenged. Um, I think it's also, it's actually genuinely a worldview. Mm. Like I genuinely think that, that reality involves, you know, if you, if you tell the same story about your past enough times, you'll find that you, that the, the meaning of it, and what exactly happened and what it meant to you and what you learned from it changes over time. Mm -hmm. And you go through phases with it. Like, you know, you actually like can have a few years when you think the other person is to blame. And then a few years where you think you're to blame. And then a few years where you think that the entire thing is the fault of a third party and you tell the story that way. And, and I think that like, that's an interesting thing about life and, and also the way one story interacts with a bunch of other stories that don't want to have anything to do with it, you know? Yes. So, so all of that, it's like, it's an attempt, like a novel feels like it's an attempt to represent the world and not just a single experience. And so this is my way of trying to, to represent the world. That makes sense to me. The There's that chapter in, in the heavens and I don't have it right in front of me. So I'm paraphrasing wildly here, but there's the chapter early on in the heavens where you very obviously slow down the prose and reorient the reader that it's not just the dream, but it's the dream within the dream. Like, are you with me? Are you tracking here? And I, I remember thinking like it was such a brave 
move as a writer to forefront what is nuanced and essential about the novel and almost say like, if you're not with me at this point, I don't know if you can keep going. It's uh, it's something that is a little bit less present in the men, but in the amount of times that stories are retold or recast in the men, I think, as you were saying, it definitely seems indicative of a worldview for sure. One of the things that struck me about the novel is um, like, there's, of course, there's like, we hear about the crisis of masculinity all the time. We hear about, you know, the threat we hear about um, like how we're failing young men. And, but one of the things that struck me about this novel is um, like, like a crisis of, I don't know, womanhood, um, which seems so obvious, but, but Jane doesn't seem comfortably herself in any of the possibilities, right? Like she's, she's Mm. comfortably herself as a wife and mother, and she's not comfortably herself with Evangeline and she's not comfortably herself with, um, the, the, what is his name? The man who abuses her. Um, Oh, Alon. Alon. Yes. Yes. Alon. Um, and I, I just, it struck me that, that this novel's doing a lot of things, but one of the, one of the things that stuck with me the most is that it seems like it's saying something about these parameters that are put on women, um, and that we can't shake off even when there are no men. Um, and that the way that you work in Jane's trauma, and I don't think there's a single woman in the book that doesn't have trauma. Um, but the way that you work it in and the way that what it has done to Jane, where she has, um, she has put herself in these various situations and just kind of hunkered down. Um, it just seemed like it was saying something about, uh, like a woman's identity, um, that, you know, that she's sort of an an archetype for many types of women who are, are traumatized and, and learn to just go with it. And if they're lucky, scream about it in the aftermath. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if, 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 if you were thinking about that, but that was one of the most poignant parts of, of the book for me. Yeah, that's definitely, that is definitely what I was trying to do with that character, particularly. And I think the, the book as a whole, what it turned into for me really quickly is my attempt to try to understand what, like what a woman is, what is the difference between a woman and a person, which is something I've never properly understood. And my attempts to, to act in the world as a woman have been really fucked up and mm-hmm. successful. Um, and I think my understanding of what 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 it all means, like I, I guess for most for most of my youth, I didn't believe that there was any such thing as a difference between women and men. I just didn't didn't see it. And then I started to realize that this really was a thing that affected people and that people felt deeply. But I, you know, I've been just sort of trying to put off dealing with it for most of my life. And so this book was, in a lot of ways, my way of, of dealing with it and trying to think in a sustained way about what, what gender means through, through the lens mostly of the female gender um, and what kinds, of, what kinds of social constructs are involved in femininity um, and especially like between women, like what, what, what that is when you're not just saying this is sexism or this is about sex difference. This is actually about like how how we interact um, 
in gendered ways, I guess. I, I, I want to hear you talk a little bit more about your thought process because <laughs> it's, it really struck me is when you're thinking about the difference between a woman and a person, especially as someone who writes, you know, I, I, I would love to hear, I, I know you don't have the answers, but I just, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, well, what am I, what am I thinking of? I think, um, I think we have really under conceptualized that, mm -hmm. that question and how women have power, how women use power, both when they're dealing with, with men and when they're dealing with other women, um, when they're dealing with children, you know, like how, how women um, inhabit a particular social space and they have certain moves available to them. And that's tended to be like stigmatized before it's understood. So like the move that women have of being able to cry in order to achieve something is just treated as fake, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's not, it's not fake any more than anything else. It's, it's a way that it is a power move. It's a way that you achieve something and sometimes you succeed and sometimes it falls short and you fail and it's catastrophic for you because you've played your big card and you didn't get what you needed. Um, so there are all kinds of things that that women can do that are powerful from the female position, but are do not have the same meaning at all from the male position. Um, and women learn how to inhabit that that role and how to do things according to that role, or, or most of them do. Um, and if you don't, if you if you try to reject that, then society kind of tries to steer you into it and teach you how to do that. So. Do you think there's a moment in the novel or a moment in her life where she was mostly herself? Oh, Jane. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like, what is yourself? Like, does she have a self that's independent of her life? Right. I think there's a point where she says, I am my life. And I, that's part of, that's part of her journey actually is coming to that point where she understands that she can't be separate from all of the terrible things she's done that she, you know, you would like to think that the things that you did, that you were coerced into doing that you ended up doing out of desperation are not you, but what, what is the part of you that isn't those things? Sandy, you are a non-binary person. Uh, that is, is that something that you, like, I know you had to kind of like come out with that publicly as a result of writing this novel and the reaction to it, but is that something that you arrived at personally years and years ago, or is it something that you kind of floated to as not feeling like, I don't know, I would just kind of like to hear more of your experience of gender in the world. That's an unfair question, but just uh, because it's so central to the novel, it feels so interesting to me that you yourself are a non-binary person. Yeah. Well, it's sort of, I, I was, I think just before I started the novel, it's, and it's funny because I didn't actually connect it mentally to the novel that much while I was writing the book, which is really kind of strange, but I think I was in a lot of denial about it. Um, like even after I started to talk to people in my life about it, I was still in denial about it, mm -hmm. which I think is not unnatural because they were too. 
So I had all these conversations, like about the time that I was beginning this book, which were were me trying to trying to make my friends convince me that I wasn't non-binary. And how it would go would be that I would say to them, um, "Hey, have you ever felt that you had a real gender? Like, do you feel that you are the gender that you were assigned at birth?" And I would want them to say no, you know. Oh. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't ask a trans person that because it's just a really fucking stupid question. <laughs> so I'm asking my cisgender friends, like, do you really feel that you have a gender? Because because I realized like the years ago, well, you know, trans people clearly have a gender. Like, so some cis people must like maybe maybe like four percent or something of cis people have a gender. But not, <laughs> but probably not most of my friends. Because that would be weird. But then when I started asking them, they would be, you know, like some of them, the, actually the first group I asked, I was just with, out with a group of like six people and I, I asked this question and two of the people said they never had. So I was like, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, this is like, this is like my normal world. But mm-hmm. from then on, I could not find a single person who did not think that they were like a single cis person who did not feel completely naturally and strongly that they were the gender that they had been assigned at birth. How wild that the first two you talked to affirmed your yeah. <laughs> your instinct and then everybody else is like, nope, 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 nope. Yeah, and I was like walking around for a while, like, yeah, yeah, I've discovered something true about c- cis people are fake. Um, so <laughs> so anyway, um, so at that point I was like, well, you know, and I would say to them, wow, I've never felt that partly because I was hoping that once I said that, they would feel safe to say, well, you know, actually I haven't either because that's not a thing, but they did not say that. They they just looked at me as if <laughs> I had laid an egg um, <laughs> and changed the subject because most of them were about my age and in people of my generation, it's not a thing that people do is be non-binary. It's just almost like really outside of, outside of, you know, deep LGBT community. It's just not a thing. Um, so from there, like I started to talk to my husband about it and he, he's really cool. He doesn't care. Um, <laughs> he absolutely doesn't care. And like, he finally said, you know, like I have no trouble with you being non-binary at all. Although I have to say, I still have a problem with some of the results of you being non-binary, which he means like my domestic habits are standard. <laughs> like, assigning that to like gender stereotypes about people who are not female. He was, he was always hoping he would have a wife who would like cook for him and clean the house and this just did not transpire. <laughs> so, but yeah, so that, so basically like eventually by the time that 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 happened, that I actually talked about it on Twitter, I had come out as it were, you know, sort of to about half of my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly people were weird about it, but they didn't really. really? Well, it's not totally weird. Like people would like they would ask me if I was going to change my pronouns. Mm which I, I don't have a strong feeling about pronouns particularly, and I'm just too lazy to do it. It's like, I've been married four times and I've never changed my last name. So I'm that kind of person. 
it just seems like a huge big deal it's like, like some people are really weird about it like a lot of people people of people in their 50s like i'm talking about people in their 50s and older i have I have friends who are younger than me, but I also have a lot of friends who are older than me. Um, they really are mostly hoping to get through their days without ever having to cope with this. <laughs> like they're sort of like, and I've had conversations with, with my friends before I started talking about being non-binary where it would just be sort of like, oh, I guess I'm old. This is just like one thing too far for me. It's like, it's the, this is the first thing that has made me feel like I can't keep up. It's that kind of thing. Um, and in some ways, like, I think some people are sort of like, like irritated with me because I just have to show off that I was able to keep up or something, but, um, but, any, but anyway, like it, it really is a thing. People have a lot of difficulty with it. People don't actually get it. And, um, and they're f afraid to ask a lot of the time, like the, the people, like I would say that the people who are older than me who were able to like ask about it and have a conversation about it, like to me sort of interestingly were also the people who told me they didn't believe in it. And it always turned out that they didn't believe in it because they themselves did not believe in gender at all. And their experience of gender was non-gender conforming. Really? So they were weird about it, but they then what they thought more about it and they realized no no it was sort of like this like i'll give you one example a um friend who will remain nameless um was like oh i just think all that's bullshit i mean my gender has always sort of flitted about and he then he like talked for quite a while about how his experiences of like feeling more female or feeling more male or being perceived as more female and being perceived as more male. But for him, it was just not necessary to have this particular definition in order to explain that experience. I see. But it's like a disagreement about language, actually. Right. Yeah. So these were people who completely got what I was talking about, but felt that you didn't need new language for it. I want to touch a little bit on some of the reaction to not the book itself, because I think that's an important distinction, but I feel like a lot of the uh, Twitter uproar was in reaction to the premise of the novel and not the novel itself. Um, I mean, just as like, I think it's fair to say the reaction to even like the Pamela Paul piece was a reaction probably more to Pamela Paul than the piece itself, or even, and I know she's a friend of yours, but like, Lauren Huff is a divisive person. And some people were like, probably just reacting to her. Um, how, I just, I guess, I'm sure at this point, Sandy, you probably have like, stock answer isn't even the right thing, but you've thought about this deeply. So I would just, I would like to hear your thoughts about kind of what that Twitter reaction, very strong reaction was like. Yeah, well, um, I mean, you know, anyone who's been on Twitter for a sustained period of time, I think, has had that fear that they were going to get involved, like, in a big mob pylon of that kind. So, um, so I think that part of it is, like, there's this, there's a feeling of 
a weird inevitability about it by the time I've been on Twitter for something like eight years and I've managed to avoid this. Um, so, so there's that, like there, there's, there is something like weirdly horrible about it, about being hated by a lot of people who barely even know you and seem so completely convinced that they're right about you. So there is that, like that, that is a real thing and it's horrible. But on the other hand, like the initial attacks, I think um, it's just a like it's a Twitter thing, you know, like people heard the premise of the book and they know that this kind of premise, this, this kind of what's called a gender side premise um, is considered problematic. And it, you know, and there are reasons for that. There are actually like reasons for that. There are certain tropes that are considered problematic or like tend to be problematic or potentially really problematic. Um, like any use of of rape as a plot point can be problematic. It's that that's just to give an example that I think most people are familiar with. Sure. So this one is is one that in in the trans community is very well known to to be problematic or potentially problematic, and thus like that's it attracted a lot of people um, from the LGBT community who were attacking it based on that. And in a way, like, I think that if it, if it had just been that, and there had been like this pile on about it on Twitter, that's fine. That's just life and it's Twitter and it's free speech and that's fine. But what was really creepy about it was what happened next. And like, what happens when a Twitter pile on is then interpreted by the mainstream media in various ways. And it turns into a thing where people want to make it, like people on the right wing want to make it be about how dangerous and out of control trans people are. Um, but then like, the, and then that turns into like an oppositional thing where I then become, you, you see what I mean? Like I become a symbol and nobody actually has read the book <laughs> so right. Right. so the, like the whole thing got the whole thing got completely out of control and stopped being related to me or to the book or anything like that really quickly um and i'm not gonna like point the finger at any particular people but but there were there are definitely like there are people who absolutely like have entire kind of careers based on doing that over various issues. Mm -hmm. um, and this one, like I was attacked by everybody from the Daily Stormer to the Mary Sue. It was the absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, and like absolutely none of them had attempted to read the book or attempted to speak to me, so. That's the part that I, I, I can't imagine as a writer, having that experience because anyone who is anyone who has written even let's just say for the sake of argument a terrible novel can still say the premise of a novel is not the novel and all of the consideration all of the nuance especially from a writer like you that's the thing that made me kind of insane watching all that is that of all the people that this could happen to I mean, you write these dense, nuanced, complicated, full of the world books. And anyone who has read your work knows you have big love for the world. I mean, you're a New Yorker. Like, 
it's all over the stuff you write. And, you know, it was so frustrating just as a lover of your work and a friend to, to see that because it's so separate from your work. And I think people who have actually spent time with your work and read the books um, would be baffled by that reaction. Um, I think if you were to say, all right, if you, if you were to completely silo a premise and say, this is the totality of the art. Okay. Yeah. I can understand how someone would get mad, but that's so far from the, the reality of the situation. It's, it's frustrating. I can't even imagine dealing with that. So I'm happy to be talking about the book and uh, not that it seems like, it seems like uh, you're on the other side of it, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I really don't know. It's sort of, um, I mean, it's interesting. One of the things that you, that I think is weird about it is that it makes you lastingly paranoid and that you're just not sure. Mm. You're not sure if things are okay. You're not sure if people who don't know you that well still think ill of you or if you, or you'll be remembered mainly as the symbol that was at the center of this particular controversy and you know like being being lastingly linked to pamela paul is definitely not my favorite thing (laughs) that was was such a clusterfuck (laughs) um so i you know like and it's so hard like that my publisher begged me not to say anything about it and and in some ways it was okay but it was so hard not to say you know like the I thought that like not so much the article that she wrote about me, but that follow-up article right. about Jesus fucking Christ. You yeah. Know? Right. Like, what is that? It was like so, back to back too, right? Wow. Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. It was awful. So yeah. Yeah. It's hard not to, not to wade in, but, but I sort of know that like, I'm not the person from whom that's wanted right now. So you just kind of have to live with that. Right. How did it feel for the book to finally come out? Um, it was it was it was okay. You know, the well, I mean, one of the things about it is that a lot of the response to it was framed around the controversy, um, mm-hmm. and much more from. I I think that it really affected how it was received by the right wing press too, and and in general, a lot of people had strange reactions to it based on whatever their personal take on gender was. So they used it as a as a pretext for the, for being angry about gender mm-hmm. and projecting whatever attitude they objected to onto me, which which ran the gamut. Like different people thought I had different attitudes to gender. That's, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you always you. I mean, it's always a risk putting a book out, and then what people get from it is is often a surprise, but not in this way, right? Not not in a way that you're being used as a mouthpiece for so many different viewpoints. It, it, oh God. Yeah, it was weird. I mean, I, you know, it's, I mean, it's an experience. It is a real fucking experience. And by the end I was like, wow, I did not, I really did not expect this, but I'm not going to say no to another like major life experience. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I'm you know, like weirdly grateful for it, even though I spent hmm. like several weeks being like when when the right wing press in Britain was after me, that was oh, just, that was fucking Jesus. awful. And like, no. really be the is that when you were overseas as well or no? Yeah, that was when I was overseas. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that really like that. That sh I think that shook everyone connected to me. Um, so that was that was horrifying. Like it was really like. I'm not going to say that I wasn't suicidal at that point, but oh my god! Jesus. But how yeah. do you get yourself in a better place in that moment? I just well, what what was lovely about it? The what's lovely about having a major life experience, I think, especially when you're in it. Like I was doing a lot of traveling to festivals and having to like present the book to crowds of people. Um, and I was very afraid, afraid, obviously, but actually all literally 100% of real people were lovely to me. That's um, the thing. People, <laughs> Twitter is not real life. Twitter yeah. does not exist in real life. <laughs> and because I was in this crazy vulnerable space, I would, I would have these like real deep conversations with people and get drunk with total strangers and have these wonderful <laughs> kind of encounters with people. That was how I got through it. Yeah. Um, and that was wonderful. And so that's yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, yeah, basically of anyone I've, I'm aware of, I can't imagine you're the last person I feel like this should have happened to is what's so strange. Um, anyway, yeah. I want to get, I want to get back to the book a little bit. Um, I know we've been talking for a long time, but I, I was so curious about Poppy in this book mm -hmm. and I wanted to know when Poppy entered the narrative for you, if you knew that kind of, wrench would be thrown in early on or if that was something that arrived later in drafting it arrived it arrived really late in the drafting um and I, i'm not even sure how um she's i mean she's almost a deus ex machina in mm -hmm. the book i've got to say like she's she's the uncanny character who's somehow connected to to malign forces um and this is it's a it's a figure that i've used before of in the heavens obviously of the character who seems to have mental illness but actually what they perceive is real um and it's funny because like i always that's one of the tropes that i i always thought was super cheesy when i was younger and it feels like to me if i if i find a trope really super cheesy i will eventually use it <laughs> like all time so this is one that i ended up using twice um but yeah i think she it's interesting because she she's one of these characters where she kind of represents something some kind of dark energy that exists in all of the other characters yeah. but they can't channel and she can it's true it seems like the potentiality for what happens with poppy exists in alan and mm. i mean that doesn't exactly make it doesn't make a, a clear there's not a clear connection but i feel like the deceit that is present in the character of alan and the way it is revealed to the reader and also to uh jane over the course of her life feels like a kind of it feels like 
like preparation for the reader for what happens with Poppy. I feel like, like you were saying, there is, there's clearly um, built in to the structure of the book um, potentiality for darkness <laughs> in every single one of these characters because of their gender and the kind of loss that they're going to feel as a result of just the setup of the book. But with Poppy, it takes such a turn. I mean, it, it was, I read the last 75 pages just in a rush, just like, wait, what is going on? Like, what the hell is going on with Poppy here? I mean, yeah, it was so propulsive. It's, it's, propul- it's very propulsive, the back half of the book. And it's very, it's scary. I mean, it's actually like legitimately scary with Poppy. Um, yeah, I, I was so curious how that entered. That's interesting. Yeah, I found yeah. myself like leaning forward as I was reading the final pages. Yeah. Just like, oh my God, oh my God. It's like, <clears throat> yeah, I was very scared. It was like the middle of the morning. I think I texted you the next day, Lindsay, and I was like, I stayed up to like 2.30 and read this book. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I think she's also sort of like, she's a figure of how pain pain flows downward it's sort of like she's I mean she's the whole some of the the construct of the book is kind of about um the tension between wanting to punish people for sexual assault and not wanting to have mass incarceration Mm -hmm. if you see what I mean so there's like the you know it's really the idea of carceral feminism which is which kind of shades over into white feminism and the two of them are kind of intertangled in this, in this way. And Poppy is sort of that figure of the person who is so traumatized um, that they, they actually like, I I don't know. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Like the violence Mm -hmm. should, should take some constructive power form, but but it somehow in, inevitably seems to turn into some kind of horrific punching down. Yeah. Well, after this wonderful experience, what are you working on now? Oh, I'm working on um, a book, which is, it's basically the George Orwell's 1984 from the point of view of the character of Julia, who is the girlfriend of Winston in the novel. Um, so it's actually, it's actually basically the same plot or like the, the same backbone of events happen. Of course, more things happen because it's her life and not his life. Um, and the events have different meanings, but that's the, that's the novel. I can't wait for all those right-wing idiots who love to say, what is this 1984 <laughs> to get mad at you? About this. They already started those. That that they, they were mad at me before the, the whole thing with the men started. So oh my oh. God. Sandy, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, it was and, great to talk uh, to you too. We love the book. So oh, we're excited for the next thing. Thanks so much for having me on. It was awesome. That was great. Um, I've been looking forward to talking to her for a long time. The men is so good. It's just like, it's just like a straight up thriller people. 
It is. I mean, you know, we kind of started the conversation talking about how it's a horror movie premise. And that's true in a couple of ways. Cause it's like, it's, it's literally true of the novel, but it's also like, it's also true of like the perspective of the narrator mm-hmm. in the book and mm-hmm. also separately the writer. I mean, like mm-hmm. I completely understand if a trans person does not want to read this book for whatever reason, who cares? It doesn't even matter why they wouldn't want to read it, but the, the novel itself is not transphobic. It's just not. And there's trans um, people. And we didn't novel. even yeah. mention the horrific videos that happen from you know all throughout the novel where it shows you where the men are um so yeah it's 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 a great read um and and sandy's like unparalleled at the sentence level so it's got that going for it too yeah no there are paragraphs in this book and her last book where you're just like jesus christ i mean i've only read two of sandy's books but sandy's a brilliant writer and uh definitely worth checking out if you haven't um, I just finished, I read two books really fast. Uh, cool. I read Jessica O's cold enough to cold enough for snow. I don't know if it's, O. it's a U Jessica, a U. I don't know that one who published it. Um, new directions. Cool. I, Catherine Lacey, like, uh, put an excerpt up on her Instagram Cool. and I just really liked it. So I got it from the library. It's like maybe 95 pages long. Oh, nice. And it's about a trip that the narrator takes with her mom to Japan. And it's, just like it's so subtle and beautiful and um and but then when you're done reading it you're like wait a minute what the hell just happened here um so I read that in a day and then right after that I read Marcy Dermansky's Hurricane Girl which just Mm -hmm. came out and I love Marcy Dermansky there's yeah like she is the queen of um like just following the plot wherever it goes and I don't know I've never talked Hmm. to her about how she does it or or you know, her intention or anything, but that's how it feels. Um, it just feels like the character is in the world and the character just like takes the next step and then another step comes and she takes that step and it's, and it gets like more and more horrifying in this one specifically. Um, and this is the one where you, when it was announced, you were like, you were like, yeah, I, I, fuck, I it sounds like my book. Yeah, because I was writing a novel. I had started a novel where um, uh, like a 20-something girl is fleeing the hurricane. And so she goes um, and stays in like her parents' condo. And it was going to be set in Central Florida and then just kind of... But this is much different. Um, this There is a hurricane in this, um, but it's not anything like that. So that was pleasing to me. <laughs> I was like, okay, I could still write that novel one also, day. Also, I mean, do you feel like you guys are similar no 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 that's the yeah thing. i don't either yeah no she's and i no. always think she wrote an essay at some point about how hard it was to get writing done when when she had had a baby because she has a daughter um and there, i always think of this one line where she was like one day eventually they go to school and then you have time again mm. and i've thought about that for years and it's about to be my life yeah. um so yeah that's that's what i've been reading now i'm reading uh i've never read Elizabeth McCracken's The Giant's House. Have you read that one? No, but it's a favorite of several Everyone. friends, including yeah. Shout Out Megan and Happy Belated Birthday. Yeah, I Megan. Think that's one of Megan's favorite books. I she posted about it recently on her Insta okay, stories, yeah. and I was like, yeah. oh, because someone asked her what her favorite book book was, and so mm-hmm. 
I always trust Megan's recommendation. So yeah. I got that. I'm reading that. It's great. Willie's a big McCracken fan too. He studied with her. Yeah, I met her once. Oh, no and, way. Um, I was like, I think this is Elizabeth McCracken. And uh, then she introduced herself and I was like, oh my God. I've oh never God. read anything. I got I to gotta read her. She's awesome. And she's married to... Um, the artist. Yeah, but he also wrote that great novel called Little. Mm, um, don't know it. Oh, it's so good. I absolutely, absolutely loved it. Edward Carey. Yeah, Edward Carey. Right, right, right. Yeah, he was doing that art project where he drew something every day. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, he's an amazing artist. And his yeah. art is in um in the little, book. Yeah. Oh, cool. He's got a bunch of books. I need to catch up. Yeah. I yeah. What a couple, you know? Great couple. What a couple. Power couple. Sure. Um, but yeah, how about what what are you up to? A lot of uh a lot of driving around to, you know t-ball gymnastics soccer that kind of thing yeah which is fun kids got their second shots today they were Ooh. champs that was good uh, what else is going on i don't know oh you know what actually happened that was kind of cool what i wrote i wrote something oh <gasps> i know this is big i know i wrote something uh a public, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna fucking vague tweet you, motherfuckers. Even though I hate it, I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> Fuck all of you guys. Uh, a publication, that's what I'll say. Said, hey, we would love to publish a story from a cardinal that never got taken by a journal. If you write a connected piece, and we'll publish both. And I was like, okay. I was not, I was not happy. I was like, can't you just fucking take the old story? <laughs> I'm kidding. I was happy. And uh, <laughs> I wrote a new one and they took them both and they're yes. going to be published together. So I thought, I was like, all right, cool. When, I, haven't, I mean, I haven't written anything can... in like, I don't know, years at this point. I'm just winnowing away. Uh, September. Yes. September. Yeah. So that'll be cool. Anyway. anyway, we didn't we didn't provide much for the back end there, but uh, Avalanche are still Stanley Cup champions, and uh, my neighbors have a bird named Avalanche. Just so you because know. of the Habs? No, because because oh. it, it's white. <laughs> Tell them to get with the program. I will. Um, All right, I'm gonna go watch the bear. Oh, cool! Yeah, everybody's fucking horny for that guy. They are, but you know what? My boy Eben Moss Backrack is even better. <laughs> Okay, he Great plays name. his cousin. I know. Great name. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. All right. Bye, bud. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop.